the Health and Wellness Show. Today is Friday the 13th. And joining me, Erica, in our virtual studio is Tiffany, Gabby, Elliot, and Doug. Hello. 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 So our topic today, Achu, allergies and intolerances. And for those of you who may be experiencing spring, maybe, <laughs> maybe not, this spring is, is upon us. This is the time of year when people start sneezing, wheezing, experiencing burning eyes, flush, itchy skin, or maybe even hives. <laughs> um, so our topic is going to be allergies. Do certain foods trigger stomach cramps or diarrhea? Do you suffer from frequent headaches or migraines, bouts of nausea, severe menstrual cramps, or panic attacks characterized by a racing heart? Well... You're not alone. (laughs) There are no firm answers as to why we get allergies, but whatever the reason, researchers are finding that food allergies are on the rise with up to 200,000 ER visits every year. Allergies have risen over 300% in just the last 10 years. So join us as we talk about our own experiences. And if you'd like to share, please call in or join us in the chat. Yeah, share your mm-hmm. allergy horror stories. <laughs> so what's the theory about allergies? Or are there differences <laughs> between allergies and our intolerances? And hopefully someone can explain to me histamine. <laughs> and how what we can do to deal with these things. Because I think at one point or another, all of us have had some sort of allergic reaction to something. Well, I think some uh, scientists did a mouse experiment, experiment, of course. They're always experimenting with mice. What else are they going to do? Were um, they genetically engineered them to not produce IG, yeah. IgE or have any kind of allergic response? And they exposed them to some strong toxic allergenic substances and the substance was able to penetrate their bodies and do significant damage to their organs and their tissues. So having allergic reactions is a protective measure. Like if you're coughing or sneezing or you have hives, that's your body's way of pushing toxins out of your body to protect it. So it doesn't go in and create a lot of damage. So having allergies is kind of a good thing even though it can be miserable mm-hmm. yes so so the difference between allergies and intolerances typically um like the medical um definition of an allergy is something which would uh, initiate the response uh, something called anaphylaxis which is uh, a really st- potent response which occurs within sort of seconds or minutes and it's characterized by you know typically the throat swells up and the person struggles to breathe and you know if someone's got allergies like say if they've got a peanut allergy or a shellfish allergy they know about it so um they will typically carry around uh, an epipen and you know they could die within minutes uh, if they come into contact with this 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 allergen 
Um, whereas intolerance is, is something quite different. So, or even a sensitivity. Now there could even be, if someone says I'm sensitive to certain types of foods, that could also be different to I'm intolerant to certain kinds of foods. So for instance, uh, an intolerance, something like a lactose intolerance. Um, if someone says that they're lactose intolerant, what it could mean is that they don't have the enzyme in their intestine to break down the lactose uh, sugar and so they will typically get diarrhea or something like that when they consume lactose and so that's like a lactose intolerance um, it's not something that's life-threatening uh, in the short term but it can cause it still cause some damage um, whereas a sensitivity or what some people call intolerances these are sort of really quite covert things so these are characterized by no immediate response um, within sort of the hour uh, typically, the response takes kind of much longer to kick in. And it, it basically what it means is that when you consume, um, it could be it, it could be a chemical intolerance or I guess for the show, we're talking about food intolerances. So sometimes what, all of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. OK. The, the, the various things that we come into contact with um as part of the chemical structure of, of the different substances, they, they present things called antigens. And our body has been designed to basically, um, um, what's to say? It's, it's on the search for antigens. Okay, so antigens are things which can evoke an immune response in the body. Um, and they can be potentially harmful. And so your body is is essentially evolved to pick out antigens from the environment and sort of decide whether they're really harmful or whether they're fairly uh, benign. So, for instance, many of the foods that we eat contain antigens, um, but touch wood, our body can see that actually this is a food. Um, we don't need to evoke an immune response. It's not harmful and it's actually good. Whereas pathogens, they also have antigens and we can basically uh, identify those, uh, launch a quick immune response and essentially, um, you know, silence or, or, or deal with that issue. And so an intolerance, what an intolerance is, is it's typically characterized by certain immune cells, which are called IgG immune cells, immunoglobulins. But it can be also other immune cells as well. But typically w w what happens in an intolerance is that our body is responding to um, uh, some sort of antigen and it, it can invoke uh, long-term sort of inflammatory responses, which which aren't necessarily um, part part of what you would be consciously aware of. So they can contribute to things like chronic inflammation, you know, low-level immune responses, which are above the ordinary level of immune response, and that can significantly contribute to sort of many different diseases. And the reason why some people don't even know that they have certain intolerances is because it doesn't happen right away. Like with a, yeah. a true allergic reaction, sometimes it can take hours or up to days to even notice that something is off. And people will say, oh, well, I'm always gassy or I'm always sneezy. Yeah, sneezy. Me, and, not, and they don't know, link it to something that they ate two days ago. 
For me, the eye-opener was when we interviewed Michaela Peterson, who mm-hmm. has several mm-hmm. allergies, and she said that she could, have, she could have a response on the 21st day, a mm-hmm. clockwork, mm-hmm. you know. That's why she will write something down and say, like, okay, we'll pass away. Or, But, yeah, it's uh, I think it's amazing because, yeah, some people say, oh, no, no, I can tolerate tomatoes just fine or any antigen in any food. And just because hours later or even one or two days later, they were absolutely fine. And then they started with some odd symptom, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I personally suffered from allergies from being very young. As a child, my mom couldn't feed me milk at all and really had a hard time finding alternatives. And then... Um, about five or six, I became really allergic to citrus. So if I ate anything with citrus, I'd break out in a rash all over my face. And I remember seeing kid pictures and it's like a red, you know, rosy rash all around my mouth. And then I was really allergic to cats and um, mold. And it wasn't until, you know, my almost 30s that I finally went to a naturopath And I had chronic sinus issues, like I felt every morning like I had a cold. And um, he tested me and he actually found uh, yeast in my sinuses Mm -hmm. and told me that he had never met anyone that essentially had a yeast infection in their sinus cavity. And I was drinking Guinness at the time, (laughs) which I loved. (laughs) I was a big beer fan and he said, don't drink Guinness anymore. And see what happens. And I think it took like two months, but I I went back to him and the yeast had cleared out of my sinuses. So that was the beginning of realizing. The only thing you did was stop Guinness? At that time, yes. Did you laugh? <laughs> <laughs> Guinness out of your nose? Is that how the yeast guys? <laughs> well, I would come to find out later that I had a gluten intolerance, <laughs> right? But it was... It was, uh, this was another naturopath I went to that when I cut out all gluten across the board, that my allergies to mold and my allergies to cats completely went away. So I could Mm. actually pick up a cat and hold it and not suffer the dire consequences for the next few days. So kind of on what Elliot was saying is like, when does an intolerance take over and become an actual allergy yeah that's a good point like i had the same thing i always had acute allergies not that it will send me to the emergency room like for an adrenaline shot but i always had um uh, ra- ra- well rhinitis <laughs> it basically you know you have a stuffy nose and very itchy eyes mm-hmm. and it will be Ill from to an immediate exposure to a pollen you know but when I got rid of gluten and dairy, I got rid of all those allergies as well. Like people will remember me always with a napkin in my hand <laughs> and kind of groggy from so many antihistaminics. And in Costa Rica, this was uh, I left Costa Rica in 2002. And when I visited several years later after I eliminated gluten and dairy, and I was like <laughs> lucid <laughs> without a napkin in the hand, nobody could believe it. <laughs> like, wow, what did you do? You don't have allergies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Very yeah. cool. 
I used to get seasonal allergies too with the sneezing, and the really annoying part was my outside of my nose would just itch like crazy, and that went away when I stopped gluten and dairy. And I think everybody has a, a bit of a different experience with it or effect. Like um, some people get really bad eczema or skin issues. I've seen a lot of children that obviously have a milk allergy, but their parents don't know what to feed them instead. And they maybe don't have the stomach aches or anything, but they break out in crazy rashes of eczema. Mm-hmm. I used to actually get eczema quite badly. Uh, well, not quite badly, actually, compared to some of the cases I've seen. But <clears throat> I would get it on my hands. Um specifically on my right hand and it was super itchy and like I had it it was like at a very particular time in my life as well as when I was an adult and it was at a very particular time of life and when I was working in um, a particular uh, well I was working in a restaurant and what I suspect it was was a reaction to the soap that they had there like the hand soap Mm -hmm. because you know I was a cook so I was like washing my hands all the time and I kind of thought that it might be because of the soap, but it was also a very high stress environment. So I kind of, I don't, I was never really able to pin down exactly what it was that was causing it, but it did seem to go away. And it was weird too, because like I would have it kind of come back periodically, um, particularly in high stress um, moments of my life. And, but I think when I cut out, like when I really um, changed my diet and like cut out gluten, dairy and all this other kind of stuff, it seemed to go away. And now it's like it's gone, but it's like weird because once in a while, the same spot where I used to have it will get itchy and I'll be like, "Uh oh, it's coming back, but it never does. So, Well, I wonder if that sometimes too, when you say you eat out and you're exposed to something in the food that you don't know about, because I have similar experiences if I eat out and I inadvertently eat some sort of gluten, my scalp will start to itch really bad. Hmm. So yeah. it might be just when your body is cleared from all those things, even just the littlest bit of it can cause a, a reaction. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, here's a, sorry, go on. No, I was, I was just going to say um, it's interesting that you said when you're in high stress periods of your life that they would come mm-hmm. up. Um, and that's I think that's a fairly common thing. Um, and I think it has to do with the effect that um, that stress actually has on the uh, the production and the maintenance of, of various immune cells. So you have one uh, one type of immune cell called secretory IgA, and so this is like present in all of the mucous membranes. It's present in your tears. It's present in um, it basically lines the gut. It's like an antiseptic layer that covers covers the gut and um, and so it's like it's one of the first lines of defense. So when anything goes into the body and um, there's some sort of pathogen or antigen or something that you come across, if you've got good levels of, of this immune cell, then it what we, it, ideally what it will do is essentially like um, deal with the issue. But what happens when someone's stressed or they're going through like a stressful time in their life, um, they've they found that it, it drastically decreases the levels of the secretory IgA production. Um, and so there's various researchers who, who um, basically theorize that that's one of the reasons why um, people 
experience um, old allergies or they experience sort of um, exacerbations of their symptoms when they get stressed is because of this. It's like this immune cell down regulation. And so perhaps there's something that you were reacting to um, or that yeah. maybe you were dealing with properly. But then when the stress lowers the, the, the system, then that can then evoke an immune response again. I, I'm not sure, but mm. yeah. The crazy thing is that I had something similar. Well, I had a really bad skin, you know, rash, dermatitis, and it was so itchy, like it, the skin looked like cartoon, you know, I'd scratch it so badly. <laughs> and I will put cortisone cream, which is an anti-inflammatory, and it will get even worse. And that time I was highly stressed. And it happened that uh, I was receiving my dermatology lessons, you know, skin diseases lessons. And so I asked the teacher, you know, look at this and what would you suggest? And he said, he actually suggested a, 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 a benzo, you know. Wow. Calm my nerves down. <laughs> I, like, I, was, I said, okay, so this is all in my head kind of thing. <laughs> well, eventually I think I finished med school and it got better, you know, just like. But that, you know, made me think like, wow, this is all like stress then <laughs> well we've actually got a caller on the line um well, we do okay we can take this call then. hello caller are you there hello hello yes hello there who is this and where are you calling hello. from <laughs> Can you hear me? Yes. 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 Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Um, I thought I'd call in and see what any of you think might help me. I've tried everything, but I have uh, a rare disease uh, called Churg-Strauss syndrome. Well, actually, they changed the name to something I can't pronounce, but that's what it mm. used to be called. And... Uh, I don't know if it's because of that or not, but my sinuses are always stuffy uh, unless I take, you know, big, bad, pharmaceutical, icky, bad stuff. Um, no matter what I eat, my sinuses plug up. And the way I found that it was no matter what I eat is, is for a week, I didn't eat anything. I wasn't feeling well. It wasn't an intended fast, but that's what it turned mm -hmm. out to be. And... uh Almost all the stuffiness went away. And as soon as I started eating again, just meat, the stuffiness came back. So, I mean, I can't drink tea, uh, mm. you know, even, you know, veggies, yams. Any suggestions that would help me? Because nothing I've tried has helped. What well, What have you tried before? Oh, you know, methotrexate, prednisone. I'm taking Benadryl every day now, uh, but that's because if I don't, I itch all over really badly, and that is part of the Churg-Strauss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's what I said, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, eosinophilic syndrome, like it has um, very high eosinophils in the blood count. Blood yes, count. Type matter of fact, that's part of the new name. Yeah, eosinophilic syndrome or something, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so difficult oh. to lower down eosinophils, right? Yeah. Have you tried iodine? I know, Gabby, that, that you've helped me a lot, and I was just wondering if maybe something else had come up. You know, Elliot being, you know, a genius, really interested <laughs> in all of this stuff, maybe he had yeah. an idea. So go for it, uh, Elliot. Um, have you, um, have you ever, uh, have you ever had any sort of functional testing done? Have you had any oh, gut testing yeah. or anything? Yeah. Well, just by mainstream doctors. I think I've gone to a couple uh, alternative practitioners, but they didn't really do anything for me. Okay. Um, well, how is your digestion? I'm thinking. <laughs> Sorry? It's, it's uh, yeah, okay. Ha- I can't metabolize fat real well. Okay. But other yeah. than that, I, and you know, I do have uh, ulcerative colitis, which is under control at the moment. I think that's also part of the Churgstrasse. Yeah. Okay. Um, I I don't know much about that condition. I'd like to have a look at it. Um, but the the first place that I would sort of look if you've tried all sorts of things. Um, and you're still not, you're still suffering from the symptoms. Um, I would try and locate someone in your area who is trained in how to read an organic acids test. I would, I would look at that one, and I would also um, recommend trying to find a, a practitioner who can read a um, a comprehensive digestive stool analysis test as well. Because sometimes um, uh, people can try lots of different things and nothing really comes of it. And then if you have some more sort of objective data um, to see exactly sort of what is going on with your digestion, you know, um, are you breaking down your food properly? Um, Is there some sort of histamine intolerance? I mean, you said that every time you eat, you get this sinus issue and, and stuff. So I would be interested in seeing... You know, is there diversity in, in, in the gut bacteria? I, I know that, I mean, as I've said, I don't know much about your condition, but uh, I think a lot of the times with people with histamine sort of symptoms, with um, nasal congestion and all of that sort of stuff, um, there's generally dysbiosis in the gut. Um, and that usually there's types of bacteria which can take food and convert it into histamine and that can cause all sorts of symptoms but then again i'm not i really i I don't know much about your condition so i'm sorry i can't help you anymore with that but i think it's a very good point because you know if it's an autoimmune disease and uh she has already tried like methotrexate like strong immunosuppressants and if it didn't change anything in terms of symptoms so that gives a big clue like well, no, no, no. Gabby, Gabby, Gabby yeah Gabby yeah the methotrexate did help oh. you know um with the symptoms and so does the prednisone it just doesn't completely go away mm-hmm. still do you tolerate probiotics at all Lynn do you, tr- do you like um tolerate probiotics at all oh I'm taking probiotics yes 
You are, okay. Yeah, I've tried different kinds. Um, I can't do the one Gabby recommends, and I can't pronounce it either. Sakar Mrs. Velarde? Yeah, it makes me stuff up really bad. But I figured it was um, sinus, or not sinus. Oh, see, it affects my brain, too. (laughs) Histamine. I figured it was histamine uh, intolerance or whatever. Yeah, and since you've got the diagnosis of ulcerative colitis as well, I would 100% invest in a stool analysis just because... Um, I mean, if you if you can afford it, of course, but just because I know so many people who've really managed to sort of find out what's going on uh, from doing that. In the meantime, I mean, if you can't tolerate the Saccharomyces boulardii, what you could try is there's one called Megaspore Biotic. There's some really interesting research about that. With ulcerative colitis, there's a lot of research which actually links in with um, hydrogen sulfide producing bacteria. So a dysbiosis of the gut, which produces too much of this particular gas, which can actually break down the mucosa and cause cause the ulcerative colitis. Um, we spoke, I'm not sure if you caught the show that we did with Stephanie Seneff about that. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, so she's done a lot of work in that area, but um, I know there are several conditions, um, autoimmune conditions, which have benefited from sort of like a, a low sulfur quite type of diet i know people who don't tolerate sulfur very well often have the histamine type symptoms um yeah it's it's kind of difficult um just based on on what you've said really lynn but i hope that you can find something that that helps that well thank you for calling in lynn yeah it's good to hear from you good to hear you guys every Friday, too. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Okay. Bye, Lynn. Bye. That's interesting with the, the histamine connection, because some of the stuff we looked into for the show did talk about histamine intolerance. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of an, a, a, an odd one, because it's not necessarily an allergy in and of itself. It's just kind of the the idea that you're producing histamine and you're you're getting histamines in with your food because it's a component in multiple different foods, and that actually um, you, you know some people are not able to actually break down those histamines um, in the proper way, and some of that can have to do with gut bacteria because there are gut bacteria that will help to break down those histamines, but there's also gut bacteria that will produce histamines, and there's some people out there who actually can't tolerate a um, uh, certain probiotics because they contain that species, which, you know, for people who can break down the histamine, it's no problem. But, um, you know, for other people, they try they try taking a, a probiotic and they can't tolerate it. So it's, it's interesting. Do we know more about these species? Like, I think it's something interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, I had a page that actually had all the different species on it, but I don't have it open now. But, um, like, yeah, like there are like, there's certain species that will break down the histamine and there's certain species. There are actually products out there that are like histamine. They, they are specifically designed to not have histamine producing um, bacteria. Yeah. Um, and they so that that one, I you know, when people don't tolerate 
um, probiotics, it's always like, well, maybe try this one just, you know, just to see. Um, and there's other supplements too. The, the enzyme that actually breaks down histamines is called DAO. And I think it's Dioxidase. Yeah. And that, that um, can be very helpful too because it's kind of like if you're not producing enough of that enzyme or your gut bacteria aren't producing enough of that enzyme, then taking that enzyme can actually help to break down that histamine, you might actually find some relief. It's not a, a solution to the problem, but it is something that could kind of like, a, you know, sort of like a Band-Aid uh, solution. It's better than histaminics. Kind of... Oh, yeah. Before the, yeah. Just by the mechanism of action, I guess. Yeah. yeah, and if there's if there's polymorphisms as well, like surrounding the methylation and transulfuration cycle and stuff. So if people, maybe they require extra folate or they are low on vitamin B12, then that is going to inevitably affect the activity of the diamine oxidase because that whole process of recycling histamine is, is dependent on the, the functioning of the methylation cycle. And then if you take into consideration the work of Senef as well, how she says that all roots get sort of diverted towards sulfate, then the more someone is, say if they, they have exposure to glyphosate and they are, let's say a lot of their resources are going towards the sulfation pathway, then that is also going to potentially back up the methylation cycle. So it's really quite multifaceted, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. I see. So we have a situation like some people cannot tolerate rich, uh, sulfur-rich containing foods because it makes them more itchy or have more allergies, though, but still we need sulfur to heal the body or for the body to function properly. Yeah. So <laughs> what would be, yeah, <laughs> I think people would like to know, so how can we approach this? Like, can we review again the steps to follow? Would, it el- would an elimination diet, I mean, I know Lynn has probably tried that. Was she shared yeah. what she didn't eat for a week and mm-hmm. it kind of went away. I mean, what happens when you eliminate everything? <laughs> you just become a breathitarian or? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wish you could reset the system, right? Like resetting a computer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a situation where someone like, um, where someone eliminates loads of different foods, um, or let's say Lynn's situation where they don't eat and the symptoms practically go away, that suggests that there is something going on in the gut, yeah, or there's something mm-hmm. going on with how they are metabolizing different food products. And so um, if someone tries to introduce certain foods um, and sees temporary benefits, benefits like there's loads of people who remove all the food from their diet apart from like 10 and then they see really good benefits but then they start reacting to those foods as well then it's kind of like um i was listening to a good lecture about this earlier and the guy was basically saying that you know it's not a problem with the foods per se as long as they're not you know inherently toxic foods it's it's the problem with the immune system and the gut bacteria and the the interface between the gut and the immune system and everything like that um and so you know if someone let's say someone has low pancreatic enzyme sufficiency or they they have low stomach acid for whatever reason you know to make stomach acid you need zinc you need vitamin b6 you need sulfate you need uh, creatine, you you need quite a lot of nutrients and you need not to be stressed. So let's say 
that in a perfect someone, world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And let's say someone is not producing enough stomach acid. Well, then those proteins that you are ingesting, um, they're not going to be fully broken down. And so when they get into the intestine, the immune system, can, you have these dendritic cells, these cells called the dendritic cells, and they basically are like um, surveyors of what's going on in the, in the gut. And so if you are not breaking down proteins, then the immune system and the gut-associated lymphoid tissue can essentially pick that up and they can say, well, actually, we do not want that getting into the blood because if the protein gets into the blood, then there's a good chance that that could evoke a systemic immune response. So what we're going to do is we're going to tag that protein and we're going to say, okay, now we are going to be on the lookout. Whenever we see the protein again, we are going to deal with it effectively. So that's all well and good. Let's say it's a steak or something. You you ate a steak when you're stressed and the protein didn't get digested and your immune system picked it up and basically tagged it for future use. And then the next time you eat the steak, you may not be stressed, um, but let's say you haven't got very good stomach acid or something like that, or your pancreas is not working well because it's busted by glyphosate, or you haven't got the nutrients to make the pancreatic enzymes, let's say. What can happen is, is you're not breaking down that protein and the immune system sees that protein again. And this time it says, actually, we recognize this and it treats it just like it's a pathogen. Um, and so you, you get to a situation whereby if you're not fixing the root of the problem, then your immune system is potentially going to recognize all foods as as potentially antigenic. And that's a situation, I mean, we've all read about it. I mean, I, I've trawled through hundreds of forums in the past and I've seen so many cases of people who've gone on eliminate, elimination diets, seen temporary benefit for like a year, but then it's gone to the point where they can't even like, they can't even eat meat anymore because they react to everything. <laughs> so they just think, like live on bone broth. <laughs> I think when you and get so, really desperate, you will be open-minded. Like I was reading like fecal transplants, they put an article on the chat. Mm -hmm. It's been considered as a treatment for allergies, you know, like, wow, <laughs> you will think like, what? But it's, yeah, like the connection is in the gut and also autoimmune disease, you know. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, it's like something drastic, like instead, okay, no probiotics are working for me. Okay, let's reset the system with a fecal transplant. <laughs> yeah. Well, well I have a you question. were talking about, oh, Elliot, you were talking about before, like going on a low sulfur diet. And the question came up like, well, you know, you need sulfur, so what do you do for that? Hadn't you recommended in the past doing, um, uh, what's it called, baths? The um, Epsom, Epsom salts. Epsom salts, yeah, magnesium sulfate baths. So like as a way of kind of getting getting the sulfur in through a different pathway than the digestion? Well, well, yeah, yeah. Um, and that seems to be like a, a kind of a safe route for many people um, because a lot of the time, like... Um, Let's say with ulcerative colitis, with Crohn's disease, with leaky gut, um, the sulfate reducing bacteria are often like a, a big problem for many of these conditions. Um, and they've actually shown with ulcerative colitis, I believe, and with Crohn's that if they put them on an elemental diet, which is like broken down, all, all broken down foods. And I think it's fairly low in sulfur or you can lose, use a low sulfur diet for these uh, clients. It puts them into like a temporary state of remission um, while they remain on the low sulfur. And I believe that's because of the, the imbalances in the gut bacteria 
there's there's these bacteria which produce the hydrogen sulfide gas and it causes the inflammation and stuff and when this happens chronically uh it can lead to something like ulcerative colitis but what what you can do and there's been several practitioners who've seen great benefit from this and i actually found great benefit from this as well is um is to take epsom salt baths uh, say if you're going to remove sulfur containing foods from your diet temporarily um, you do need that sulfate and so if you take epsom salt baths um, they're absorbed into the skin and um, and it bypasses the gut so it's not converted into that toxic metabolite which is hydrogen sulfide and so that that can be really good for allergies um, because that tends to link in with with the whole histamine thing as well um, and so yeah that's a that's a good way that you can sort of bypass that if you're looking to do that mm-hmm. yeah no that makes a lot of sense yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and there's even magnesium oil that you can use on your body too what is that yeah. magnesium sulfate sulfate does it i'm not sure you can get uh, magnesium sulfate oil but you have to make sure that it's not magnesium chloride oil because i don't yeah. think that would have the same effect it has to have uh, sulfur right yeah. maybe msm will work Mm-hmm. Or DMSO even? Well, maybe MSM, DMSO. I know, yeah. Well, MSM, I know that, that some people actually, there is there is an allergies protocol that involves kind of like front loading with MSM. So before allergy season, these are, these are mostly people who have like environmental allergies like pollen and uh, dust and things like that. Um, so before kind of allergy season, um, if it is like a pollen that you're allergic to, you would um, kind of load up on MSM for like a couple of months beforehand. And the idea is that because the, uh, the liver is using sulfur to kind of get rid of these, um, like to detox, um, you're giving your body like a whole ton of sulfur so it has the ability to do that. And a lot of times when people are actually having an allergic reaction like the, the, the histamine type reactions, it's because the, the body hasn't been able to kind of detox it quick enough. So by taking a lot of MSM, it kind of gets rid of, um, it, it allows the liver to kind of process this stuff and get rid of it without you having kind of uh, the overt reaction to it. Now, again, it's not a solution, but it is something that kind of provides some relief. Mm-hmm. So here's Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And maybe people can share their theories. Like children have allergies. And yet they can grow out of those allergies maybe by the time they hit their teens or 20s. And some adults develop allergies in their 20s or their 30s when they spent their childhood without allergies. What's the deal with that? (laughs) (laughs) Personal threshold toxins or something. (laughs) I know people who have been diagnosed with celiac disease like at 92 years old. Did you say 92? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so ninety two so years of abuse, and then <laughs> wow. Uh, I was just wondering what the mechanism one. is, like for with the example of children who grow out of their allergies, like milk or peanuts or something like I that. I don't know because I Why was allergic do to. They grow uh, out of it. I was allergic to to like dust and cats and cigarette smoke like you know i went to the doctor and i had the pinprick test on the arm and they kind of said okay you're allergic to this this and this and it was kind of like okay so i avoided those things and then you know after 
I would like when I wasn't a kid anymore. Like suddenly, I wasn't allergic to these things at all. Wasn't allergic to cats. Wasn't allergic to cigarettes, dust, like everything. I was just kind of went away. So, I, and I don't know. I mean, is it just that the the body kind of needs some time before the thing, the immune system, kind of catches up or something, and and learns to kind of process these things properly? I don't know. Or what well, about the other it, way around? <laughs> yeah, or the other way around. The body's breaking down. Well, there's there's a there's the whole hygiene po- hypothesis of, of allergies, which is like yeah. one of the reasons why we've seen so many allergies, which are um, like more common these days, um, is because of, of the idea of someone not being exposed um, when they're very young to all of these different things. Like we have chlorinated water, and we use antibacterial hand soap, and children don't play in the dirt, and everything like that. And so that may be one of the reasons why people, why children have more allergies. Um, but on, onto your question, Tiff, <laughs> uh, why, how, how a child would grow out of that. I think there is a certain degree of immune um, maturity that, that a child does develop when they're a certain age. Now, I don't know um, <laughs> exactly what governs that, but um but there is definitely what they what they refer to as as maturity of the immune system maybe it takes some children more time than others um and i i don't know but also i mean there's the question is is an ige allergy even like a natural thing to have or is it just a complete sort of uh is the system just going wrong you know what i mean yeah is it breaking down because it's a red flag yeah, because yeah. In, I'm sure in traditional cultures there there was no such thing as uh, no as allergies, so it's kind of like a new thing. Yeah, Even that's what I was, was going to ask about the 300 percent rise in just the last 10 years. Well, if you take I was going to ask exactly. That's, what, that's that was my question for Drew. You kids are getting now. Yeah, they use soy, peanut, oil. peanut oil, and Egg. vaccines. Eggs. Eggs. Uh, Maybe. So those are a lot of the things that kids are allergic to. Maybe once the effect of the vaccine wears off, then their allergy goes away. Yeah, that's my speculation. Foreign proteins into you, you're going to get allergies. Well, yeah. I mean, that might explain the age thing, too, because, like, if you look at our grandparents or great grandparents' generations, they didn't have all these allergies. Like, it, it clearly is a modern phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And they, it might just be, I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's all these vaccines. I mean, I think it, it, it wouldn't surprise me if that was that was actually part of the problem. Um, but I, I think, I mean, there's also just the idea of the, like, how much toxicity we're kind of surrounded by and that the the, the immune system is kind of overwhelmed by all the crap that we're surrounded by constantly. Um, and that, you know, it has to work overtime to kind of be dealing with all this other kind of stuff. So it's like suddenly like the littlest thing will start throwing off like food or pollen or any of these other kinds of things. It's like, it, it's, it's like the body is so full of crap that it, it's just, it, you know, one little thing suddenly makes it overflow, but, but I don't know. Yes, it, it is very worrisome, you know, the amount of people that are turning up to the emergency room with severe allergic reactions and even mm. mid-age people like, you know, uh, like a bug bites them and they got the whole leg it's swollen like 
from the inflammatory reaction, but it's also an allergic reaction. It's not that they mm -hmm. have like a, they need an adrenaline shot. It's just, you can see that it's like pure itchiness inflammation, you know. So, mm -hmm. everybody's yeah. awake, you know. It's, it's, I think it's also uh, it's also important to look at the mediators of that sort of um, that m like major allergic response, and uh, most of them are, are what are called prostaglandins, and mm. so you have different types of prostaglandins. But the main one that we're concerned with, I believe, is prostaglandin two, two, and that two, is yeah. yeah, and that is produced by omega six arachidonic acid so omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids in the membranes of cells um, mm. when there is a, a um, there's an enzyme and it basically is is activated during this this allergic response and this um, this releases these 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 vegetable oils basically <laughs> that's what they are they're vegetable oils in the cells they release vegetable oils. yeah yeah explodes the vegetable oils and they are responsible um for essentially mediating this massive like unbelievable inflammatory response and it can actually kill you but um <laughs> and this is, this is really controversial but i i remember reading a doc, guy called dr ray pete and he was actually citing evidence <laughs> about how um <laughs> there were cases where and, and th this was sort of to justify his idea that it's with the rise of polyunsaturated vegetable oils that we've seen the allergies and there could be an argument for that I think it's probably a mixture of all the things, but his idea is that it's mostly the vegetable oils because he's talking about how you can you can essentially reverse the anaphylactic shock just by giving the patient a can of Coke. <laughs> and so, or, 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 or what? Two what? yeah, I know, or two tablespoons of sugar. And he was he was going through the mechanisms by which by which it works. And so, by providing the the patient who's undergoing the allergic response with pure sugar, pure glucose, what it does is it um it shifts the cell away from the from the metabolism of the fat and shifts it toward glucose oxidation. And this is what suppresses the release of these vegetable oils, which are causing the inflammatory response. So I'm not recommending to go and drink a can of Coke <laughs> or something, but I'm saying that, that there seems to be some evidence that it, maybe the vegetable oils are also a part of the, the problem that we're seeing with all of these allergies. I, I, I have no question about that. I think people are so inflamed and it's just like a bunch of oxidized explosive vegetable oils in their diet. And also like maybe the glyphosate, but also you can see a lot of mothers, you know, uh, bringing their children to the emergency room uh, right after they start introducing wheat into their diets, mm -hmm. like at mm. six, eight months or something, you know. And they start with all kinds of infections and problems, you know, and I just like, well, the obvious thing here is maybe we should introduce wheat into children's diet. Because these kids, okay, they had vaccinations, but the, the bulk of them comes like at four years old or, you know. So, yeah, many factors. Well, there's GMOs and all the additives that are put into food, like uh, food dyes, colorings, uh, preservatives. Then there's pesticides and herbicides and all the other Fungicide. chemicals that are sprayed yeah. onto crops. It's uh, it's a wonder that we all aren't just dropping dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the resilience. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, kind of like what Elliot was saying, too, um, with stress and children, you know, no longer going outside or Mm -hmm. being in the dirt or being in households where there's stress in the family. Or they're on social media all the time. Yeah. And they're not getting sunlight. They're not getting fresh air. They're not getting essential elements aside from food that would make their immune system strong. Yeah. There is actually a connection with vitamin D. I know Mercola is really, like for a while there, he was really big on the vitamin D. And he said that um, vitamin D might be like a contributor. Like if people aren't getting enough vitamin D, they uh, they might have be more prone to having these kind of allergic reactions. So I think there might be something to that, the never going outside thing. Like there's the probiotic aspect of it, but then there's also the, the vitamin D aspect. Yeah, so vitamin D has like a really interesting effect on these immune cells called T regulatory cells. So the T regulatory cells basically, um, they control, they can basically turn on the immune response or turn it off. And they, they can also govern which sort of branch of the immune system is involved. So you have like Th1 or Th2. So that's all really complicated we don't need to go into that but the vitamin d basically modulates um it can modulate those cells which go on to modulate whether the immune system can be turned on or off and so there's certain studies which have shown that um for well i mean sunlight exposure is basically um inversely correlated with you know most most autoimmune conditions um but there's there's some research showing that vitamin d the the people who had higher vitamin D levels who were diagnosed with like MS or Crohn's disease or something, they had much uh, less flare-ups or they were like in, you know, they had a, a lower level inflammatory state. And I think that's, they link that back to the mechanistic effects of the vitamin D, but not also that there's also vitamin A. And this is one thing that kind of gets overlooked is that vitamin A, for vitamin D to be able to exert its effects on the immune system, you also need lots of vitamin A, and that's not from carrots. (laughs) (laughs) That's preformed vitamin A. (laughs) Yeah, cod liver oil or or liver or something. Because if you're one of those unfortunate people like I am, who has certain genetics, which means that they very likely can't take carotenoids from carrots and turn them into vitamin A, then it means that you have to consume... in eggs and all of that stuff like proper animal foods um but yeah so vitamin a is important for for mod for helping vitamin d do its job in the immune system but vitamin a is also actually really important to promote the production of secretory rga the immune cell in the in the in the mucus barrier of the gut that i was talking about earlier and this is one of the things um that that is like sort of like the first line of defense so i mean ultimately the fat soluble vitamins are just like they're 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 wonders Uh, we can speculate, actually, because, you know, there are a lot of people who get skin rashes, allergic type, you know, much worse after sun exposure. You know, they're literally allergic to the sun. Maybe these people have a lot of explosive vegetable oils in their cell membranes. They also have very yeah. low vitamin D and, uh, and E. And maybe they have a deficit in sulfur at their skin. I don't know, but it's pretty common, like, you know, that literally people avoid the sun because it just makes everything worse. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point because the sunlight, like the UV light is, I mean, it is a potent source 
of, I mean, it's potential carcinogen, like, in the right circumstances. I'm not saying that it causes skin cancer, because I don't believe that, but it's really powerful uh, radiation. And, um, and yeah, I mean, if there's loads of sort of vegetable oils in the skin and there's not enough vitamin E, that was a really good point, Gabby. There's not enough vitamin E to be able to, to essentially... Um, to mop up the byproducts of the oxidation of those rancid oils, then I think it's only natural that there's going to be, you know, uh, an inflammatory response. Yeah. What it's worrisome is like people increasingly in the last years, especially young, young people, they're not responding, you know, anymore in the emergency room to like cortisone shots or antihistaminics. Usually did the job for an emergency like 10, day, 10 years ago. But right now, there are people over-medicated with all kinds of things, and they cannot get a hold of their symptoms. It's uh, crazy, you know. Just... Yeah, especially if they're taking round after round of steroid. Like every time they itch, they go to the doctor, and the doctor gives them a steroid. Eventually, that stuff's not going to work anymore. Do you just hmm. build up a tolerance to it? I guess maybe yeah. the immune system just learns how to work around it. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, there is actually something called cortisol resistance. This is something that you see in obesity or like uh, what they refer to as adrenal fatigue. It's where basically when the cells are under like a chronic influence of cortisol, um, much like insulin resistance, they actually stop responding to cortisol. So it's like, you know, cortisol, ordinarily what it should do is suppress the immune response. Yeah, so, I mean, sometimes cortisol is good. That's why if someone's got, like, chronic chronic uh, inflammation or chronic back, they'll usually – chronic back pain or something, they'll usually have high cortisol, and that's, like, to suppress the inflammation. But the problem is is that when cortisol starts to become resistant and the cells don't listen to cortisol anymore, that is when you've got a really big problem because then you've got really high cortisol, but it's not – doing what it's meant to do so you get like a, a feedback system positive feedback system where you're just continually producing more cortisol that's, and this is how people crazy. drop down dead yeah it's like insulin resistance but it's to cortisol that's crazy yeah but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so would really, you have really to go on like a, a six-month fast to totally reset your body yeah we have to change the project, uh, you know, the the line of treatment. You know, people mm -hmm. cannot just continue going to the emergency room for these shots. They will mm -hmm. just have to, like, lock themselves and do a fast to reset everything and then just address <laughs> yeah. every single a possible factor. A fecal transplant fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's well, kind of crazy. Start if eating some cod liver. I don't know. <laughs> uh -huh, yeah. Like, cause if you think about it, it, it does, it seems like the cortisol shots and the cortisol creams and all that kind of stuff are kind of suppressive. Mm -hmm. And if we go back to what Tiff kind of opened the show with the idea that these allergic reactions actually do have a purpose, like your body isn't just like messing up, like it's, it's doing what it thinks is the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. So if you just turn around and suppress that, then whatever it is trying to accomplish, it won't be able to accomplish. So you can only imagine that things are going to get worse. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, it kind of makes sense in a way. Yeah, the bad thing is, is that it's just so uncomfortable and people are miserable yeah. and they don't know what to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that can take a mental and emotional toll for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah, allergic reaction itself, you know, makes you like. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like, you know, I've never, thank God, 
um, knock on wood here too. Um, I've never actually been one who has like seasonal allergies, mm. but I've known some people who have suffered so badly through that and they just have the worst response. And it's like this, it's like allergy season comes and they're just like miserable, like, mm. you know, for the entire time. I used so, to be, I mean, I you just described my teenagers, <laughs> my teenage <Yeah>. years. <laughs> right. Yeah. Only that in Costa Rica, seasonal allergies was like all the year. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. I yeah. tell you, removing gluten and dairy, it did a miracle for me in that sense. You know, just stop having like seasonal allergies. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Same here. <laughs> that's amazing. And it was just interesting how the naturopaths kind of blatantly said, well, once you cut out something like gluten, your body isn't constantly responding to everything you're eating. So mm -hmm. those sensitivities just fall away. And if yeah. people don't want to give up gluten or they have given up gluten and say they still have allergies, they can try a histamine reducing diet. Uh, and some of the stuff that we read for the show which I didn't know, is that histamine is in a lot of aged or fermented or cultured foods and hard mm -hmm. cheeses, oh, which yeah. is really sad because cheese is very yummy. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I love well, red like wine, chocolate, nuts. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of foods that are high in histamine. But the thing is, you read one list that says these foods are high in histamine, and then you go to another site where they say... Different it's not yeah, it's <laughs> these other foods. <laughs> so yeah, that's where elimination diet comes in. You have to track it really carefully, make lists, and maybe make an Excel spreadsheet or something. <laughs> <laughs> Keep track of what you eat and how you feel. I mean, if you really, really, really want to get to the bottom of what's going on, that's kind of what you would have to do, unless you want to go yeah. on a six-month fast. <laughs> Well, yeah, one of the and things too uh, that's really counterintuitive is that um, fermented foods that have like beneficial probiotics in them, like those ones, if you're trying to, uh, like if you're sensitive to histamines, are terrible. Yeah. Like sauerkraut, yeah, kombucha, that, yeah. all these things that are supposed to be like, oh yeah, it's really good for gut health. And you know, people try them and like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> it's like, well, what do you do now? Yeah, and just to make things worse as well, is if your gut's in a really bad state. <laughs> And it's not only just histamine, you've actually got gut bacteria which can take the amino acid histidine and put it through an enzyme called histidine carboxylase and turn it into histamine. So it doesn't even matter if you're not eating histamine, you can just be in standard, standard meat which contains histidine and um and that can be that can make histamine so like uh the same is with uh, tyrosine as well so tyrosine is found in all sorts of meats and stuff and they're typically considered to be safe but if you've got certain gut bacteria they can take tyrosine convert it into tyramine and that's a similar effect as histamine so, so it, there are it more people reporting there are more people reporting allergies to meat and it's not like the lone the lone tick. Lone star tick. It's not bad. It's probably what you're talking about. It's just like they're <laughs> histamine producing factories. That's why yeah. I wanted to know, learn more about these probiotics. You know, maybe. Yeah. You know, the histamine free probiotics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, 
there's a there's a prominent guy in the world of MTHFR, and he has a brand, I think, and he talks about it a lot. Um, and there's a couple of them. There's a couple of them, and they are supposedly meant to reduce the histamine load. I don't know anyone who's taken them, um, but I know a couple of people who who have recommended them, and they say that there's good results from them. Well, ascorbic uh, acid is supposedly a good natural antihistamine. Antihistamine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've loaded on quercetin and vitamin B6. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've loaded on that for years. Mm-hmm. C. Once you have a breakout, like a really severe breakout, it's not going to work. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Like, prevention. You have to like front there. load it. <laughs> yeah. Prevention is the key. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. In a lot of cases, too, the um, protein digesting enzymes can be helpful because mm-hmm. if you're not yeah. breaking down your uh, breaking down your proteins properly to their individual amino acids, then sometimes you need a little bit of help. So they will recommend things like bromelain or serapeptidase. Those are kind of protein digesting enzymes that can can be very helpful. Glyphosate free. Stinging... Yeah. Yeah. Well. And the bromelain <laughs> comes from where? Pineapple? Pineapple? Pineapple and, and papaya. That's why you're not making. Or no, bromelain is is, is uh, <laughs> bromelain is pineapple and papaya pineapple. is papain. Papain, yeah. Yeah, I know it's that? really hard to get organic pineapple, but be wary. Don't buy dull pineapple. It's one of the most pesticide crops there is. Really? Uh, yeah. I didn't know. I thought it was the opposite. Yeah, it's bad. Something else that... Sorry, go ahead. I don't know if it can get in, you know, if anyone's seen a pineapple, it has a very thick skin, but I would imagine with excessive spraying that it would get into the the fruit. Yeah. And if the soil is contaminated as well. Hmm. Or if the soil is dead, really. There's no good microbes in the soil that the fruit can absorb. Just a thought. Get yourself some organic bromelain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing that people can try is um, short-chain fatty acids. So you get you can try to increase them like naturally. So there's various sort of prebiotic supplements and stuff that you can take, or you can if you tolerate things like onions and stuff, they're good sources of sort of prebiotic fibers which can help to increase the short-chain fatty acids. But um, for those who don't know what short-chain fatty acids are, they're basically um, they're produced predominantly by gut bacteria. Um, and what they do is they can act as like an energy source for the cells that line the gut, and they help to maintain like a, a healthy barrier and also help to sort of maintain the immune um, control of what's going on in the gut. And so... Um, it, it very often turns out, actually, on most of the stool tests that I have run on people that I know or uh, on myself, I've found that I have low butyrate, and this is quite a common thing for many people. And it turns out that butyrate is is really quite an important one for maintaining the health of those cells. Um, and so there's certain practitioners, and there's some amazing research, actually, which has shown the benefits of just taking uh, something like calcium magnesium butyrate or sodium butyrate. Um, 
and you can take this. I think you take it away from meals, but I'm not 100% sure about that. But there, there is some research showing that um, that can actually um, – there's people who've treated um, – uh, various different issues, mainly the the inflammatory bowel diseases, but I think it, it would also help with sort of non-immune, maybe histamine type symptoms and stuff, and perhaps even allergies. I have a, a confession to make regarding that. <laughs> I have tried butyrate enema. <laughs> it's, oh, hard yeah. <laughs> wow. it's hard to retain, but it can be done. <laughs> Wow. And I think a lot of people were reporting good results with that. That's why I tried it. I, this was years ago, but yeah, it stuck in my mind that butyrate is such a good like raw food for the for the intestine, so to speak. And and uh, some people because of its other, some people use it as a substitute for cheese. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, and, and, I mean, it's, don't get me wrong; it doesn't. It's not that bad. Um, it's okay. Mm. It's uh, it's cooler, but yeah, it's interesting because uh, butyrate is also the the chain in gamma um, gamma uh, butyric acid, right? GABA. Mm. Mhm. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Were you talking about stinging nettle the other day, Erica? Yes. I can't remember what it's good for. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's good for allergies. Allegedly, you can drink stinging nettle tea, but if you, like, wildcraft it and get it out of the forest near you, you want to pound it down and get rid of all the stinging nettles first before yeah. you get in the tea. But you can drink the tea, and, like, if you have seasonal allergies, drink it every day during mm-hmm. allergy season. Which is funny, because if you touch a stinging nettle plant, it's hell. <laughs> Yeah. I know. Well, it's like having an allergic reaction, actually. Yeah. Wouldn't yeah. homeopathy work better, or no, it has to be like the tea? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know people take supplements of it, like um, apparently 300 milligrams of like freeze-dried stinging nettle every day is supposed to be helpful. I haven't heard of a homeopath. It might be one of those Latin names that I just don't know. I've but taken aphis homeopathic. For insect yeah. bites. Yeah, that's a bee sting. Yeah. Homeopathic bee sting. Well, for um, some people, it had worked. I was going to say there's two other things that, off the top of my head, that I think could help. Um, one is glycine. Um, and this is because... If there is some issue, if, if, if the so-called allergies or the kind of reactions are stemming from some sort of defect in methylation, then uh, what can happen is, is that when someone has some sort of methylation defect, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will not be undergoing the, the methylation cycle. It means that they can do it, but they will be... Um, Without going into any detail, they they waste glycine to perform methylation. So you can do it two ways. You can use B12 and folate, or you can use glycine. And so a lot of people who don't have enough B12 and folate, they still get enough methylation um, done, but they they just waste loads of glycine. And I think we don't get enough glycine in our diets anyway. Um, you know, you have to drink a lot of bone broth or eat a lot of skin. 
And I don't think, I mean, I don't particularly like eating pork skin. <laughs> pork skin. I quite <laughs> like crackling, but I don't eat any yeah. beef skin or anything either. <laughs> so, so taking glycine, not too much because Stephanie said I did warn against it, saying that it could replace alanine in proteosynthesis. However, I usually take about five grams with every meal that contains protein. Um, and I, um, I found significant benefits to my gut from taking that. Um, and so glycine can, it basically is a precursor to glutathione when it's with other amino acids. Um, so it has been shown to boost glutathione. It, it is used to, uh, secure the gut and it is also used to spare methylation. There's another one as well, which is really underappreciated. And this is creatine. So creatine is, yeah, it's what loads of bodybuilders take. Um, like when I read about creatine, it always just made me think of like the gym bros standing there in the mirror, mirror in the gym, like drinking creatine shakes, because that's the only thing that, that I knew about creatine. But I've learned a lot about it since. And it turns out it's actually quite an amazing amino acid. Uh, it's been used in several trials uh, to increase brain performance, cognitive performance, memory recall. Um, but also protein synth- synthesis this is one of the reasons why uh, a lot of athletes and things do take creatine because it is like amazing for increasing strength and increasing uh, muscle mass and things like that. But one really interesting thing is that for many people with methylation issues and subsequent histamine issues, um, taking creatine, what creatine, what creatine, can basically do is it can spare methylation as well so up to around sort of 40 to 50 percent of methylation um, is actually used to make creatine so it's theoretically possible and according to uh, several researchers like you know one of which being chris chris master john he has actually cited evidence which suggests that if you take creatine supplementation that you uh, spare the methyl groups and you can essentially use what little sort of methylation substrate you have to be able to form the other functions. So it's like a, a kind of sparing effect. So um, the dose for creatine is about 5G per day. And you can get just like a really cheap version, which is creatine monohydrate. Um, there's loads of different versions, but creatine monohydrate has basically been shown to be as effective as any other version, if not more effective and possibly more che- cheap. Yeah. Huh. And the that side effect is you get huge. <laughs> Sorry? Huge. I said huge. the side effect is you get huge. <laughs> well, I'm not huge, and I've been taking it for a while. I'm actually still quite <laughs> <laughs> Um But uh, another thing that I wanted to say about creatine is that um, this is something that isn't well known as well, is that creatine is actually used in stomach acid production. So if you haven't, if you get, like, burps if you get heartburn if you get sort of gas or bloating or something and there's and you think you you might have low stomach acid um i found that creatine helped massively in that regard because what isn't well recognized but i mean it's it's really basic physiology is that you have a backup system uh in your cells to provide them with energy when there's not enough oxygen and that's the creatine phosphate system and so this is like a rapid form of energy that creatine can donate to the mitochondria and so um so anywhere 
like in the stomach, it needs to maintain a really high acidity. Uh, and to do that, it requires rapid regeneration of ATP. And you inevitably do use the creatine phosphate system. And so by supplying yourself with more creatine, there's a good chance that that would probably support stomach acid production as well. Um, and that's something that I never knew about. But I read about it a couple months ago and I thought, wow, that's amazing. I tried it and um, I... I don't really get any symptoms which are related to um, to low stomach acid anymore. So I don't know whether it's to do with the creatine or something else. But, yeah, that might help someone. Hmm. Very interesting. That's great. Do you know well, if people report testimonials? Like, well, I wouldn't think so. I don't know. They take creatine for other purposes and then this other thing got better. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm not. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you could probably look through the bodybuilder forums if you've got the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be quite the jungle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, but people do take it for other other purposes other, other than muscle building, and it's got some good research behind it. Hmm. Well, folks, we're coming up on our time. If you don't have any other possible solutions, we'll go to our pet health segment and it's about allergies and pets hello and welcome to the pet health segment of the health and wellness show the spring is here and along with it seasonal allergies listen up to dr karen becker while she talks about this topic and how to treat allergies and various inflammations in a natural way. Have a great weekend and goodbye. Hi, this is Dr. Karen Becker and today we're going to discuss treating seasonal allergies in pets. Humans who suffer from seasonal allergies usually have symptoms involving the respiratory tract, like sniffling, sneezing, coughing, and sometimes breathing difficulties. But when a dog or cat has allergies, the symptoms more often show up as a condition called allergic dermatitis, which is irritation or inflammation of the skin. A pet with allergies is usually very itchy. He'll scratch excessively, he might bite or chew on a certain part of his body or be generally irritated. He's probably also prone to rubbing his body against furniture or the carpet as he tries to relieve the miserable itchy feeling that he has. As the itching and scratching progress, the skin could become inflamed and tender, and there might be areas of hair loss, open sores, and scabs. If your pet is a dog, he can develop hot spots, although cats can get them, it's certainly more rare in kitties, which are inflamed, infected areas of skin resulting from overgrowth of normal bacteria. Hot spots are typically red and very angry looking. They kind of ooze pus and they can develop very, very quickly. Frequently, they cause bleeding and hair loss in the patch of skin that, that the infection is occurring on. Pets with seasonal allergies, especially dogs, oftentimes will have additional problems with their ears. The ear canals can become itchy and inflamed as a part of the generalized allergic response. They can also become infected with yeast and bacteria. Symptoms of a possible ear infection include scratching at the ears, aggressive head shaking, hair loss around the ears, certainly a stinky odor coming from the ears, and of course discharge from the ears. Another sign to watch for if you, if you would suspect that your pet may have allergies is generalized redness, which means your pet can become red anywhere. Red puffy eyes, red oral tissue, a red chin or red muzzle, red paws, a red belly and inner thighs, even a red anus and tail base. 
Respiratory symptoms aren't common in dogs and cats with allergies, but they're certainly not unheard of. Much like an allergic human, your dog or cat may have a runny nose, watery eyes, sneezing, or coughing. Pets with seasonal allergies to pollens, grasses, ragweeds, and molds also tend to develop a sensitivity to other inhaled allergens. And animals with a weakness in the lung fields can develop sinusitis and bronchitis, just as people do. The first thing I do for any pet, and especially a dog or cat with allergies, is to address the diet and the possibility of leaky gut syndrome occurring. Oftentimes dysbiosis, which is also called leaky gut, is the reason seasonal allergies get progressively worse from one year to the next. For more information on leaky gut, take a look at my video on dysbiosis. Pets with allergies should be transitioned to an anti-inflammatory diet if they aren't already on one. Foods that create or worsen inflammation are high in carbohydrates, and your allergic pet's diet should be very low in grain content and absolutely potato-free. If you adhere to Chinese food energetics or Chinese food theory and their principles, then you will also avoid feeding energetically warm or hot foods during the periods of inflammation in your pet. So this means avoiding chicken and beef as protein sources. Omega-3 fatty acids can decrease inflammation throughout the body. Adding them into the diet of all pets, particularly pets struggling with seasonal environmental allergies, is, is a very beneficial idea. The best sources of omega-3s are krill oil, salmon oil, tuna oil, anchovy oil, sardine oil, and other fish body oils. Just a reminder that cod liver oil does not provide enough EFAs for pets. It's only a really good source of vitamin A and D. I also recommend coconut oil for allergic pets. Coconut oil contains lauric acid, which helps decrease the production of yeast in the body. Using a fish body oil with coconut oil before inflammation flares in your pet's bodies can really help moderate or even suppress the inflammatory response. Because allergies are an immune system response, it's important to keep your pet's immune function optimal. This means avoiding unnecessary vaccines and drugs. Pets suffering with allergies should not be vaccinated during an allergic flare-up. Vaccines stimulate the immune system, which is the last thing your pet needs with an allergy issue. I recommend instead talking to your holistic vet about titers to measure your pet's immunity to core diseases as an alternative to automatically vaccinating. Pets that go outside regularly are basically furry Swiffers, so they're collecting millions of allergens each time that they run around outside in your yard. Irrigation therapy, which is the fancy word for rinsing your pet off, can provide immediate relief for itchy, irritated skin. Frequent baths also wash away allergens on the coat and skin. It's very important that you use a grain-free shampoo, so no oatmeal shampoos if you have allergic pets. Foot soaks are also a great way to reduce the amount of allergens that your pet's tracking into the house and spreading all over her indoor environment. If your pet is prone to licking and chewing her feet, this is a great way to reduce the potential for infected nail beds, interdigital cysts, and inflamed swollen pads. I've had dozens of clients in my practice set up foot soaks outside their back doors and do a quick parade through the soothing disinfecting wash each time that their pets come in from outside. And believe it or not, this simple trick has kept many of my seasonal allergy patients off of medications for the entire summer just by rinsing off feet on a consistent <coughs> basis. Eye rinses, specifically for pets, can provide relief for itchy eyes, but it's very important that you never use a human medicated eye drop without your vet's consent. There is a great over-the-counter all-natural eye rinse by Halo Pets that can reduce eye irritation, and I would recommend that in place of any type of drug or human drug eye drop for certain. It's important to keep the areas of your home where your pet spends most of his or her time as allergen-free as possible as well. 
vacuuming and cleaning floors as well as pet bedding is an important part of helping to reduce the amount of allergens in her environment. Obviously, using non-toxic cleaning agents rather than household cleaners that would contain chemicals is also beneficial. Investing in an air purifier to remove allergens inside the house is a great idea for allergic pets. Covering your pet beds with dust mite covers that can be frequently washed can also help reduce allergen contamination that your pet may be bringing in from the outside. There are a few supplements that I routinely prescribe for pets with seasonal allergic issues. Quercetin is a bioflavonoid with anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and other wonderful properties. In fact, I call it nature's Benadryl because it's very effective at suppressing histamine release. And histamine is what causes the inflammation, redness, and irritation associated with an allergic response. Bromelain and pepain are proteolytic enzymes that increase absorption of quercetin, making it more effective. I like to combine quercetin, bromelain, and pepain together because they have a great a synergistic effect and they suppress prostaglandin release, which in turn decreases the pain and inflammation of irritated mucous membranes and body parts. I also frequently recommend a product called Histoplex AB by Biotics Research. This is a blend of standardized herbal extracts with immunomodulating effects. I also use a lot of ModuCare by Thorne Research to help modulate the overactive immune system. Eucalyptus oil can be healing to mucous membranes, and diffusing the oil around allergic dogs has proven to be pretty beneficial in, in most instances. I also sell locally produced honey at my clinic as well. Local honey contains small amounts of pollen from your local area and can help to desensitize the body to your local allergens. So my honey that I sell in Chicago, of course, has been proven at really effective at decreasing seasonal allergic responses to the dogs and cats living in the Chicago area. You would need to visit your farmer's market and pick up local honey for your area and give it to your pets. Pets can also receive desensitization injections. That's the typical allergy shots like allergic humans do. But many pet owners opt for oral drops instead, and studies show that the sublingual, which is under the tongue variety, can be just as effective as the injections. I do use a product that's based off of local allergen load called Resbic Therapy, and my clients um, really have appreciated this, especially in light of having to give regular desensitization shots to their pets. If you're lucky enough to live around an NAET practitioner, they too can offer a non-toxic means of allergy elimination. The more your pet is exposed to the allergen that she's sensitive to, the more intense and long-lasting her allergic response will become. With my regular patients, that means those who have started out as life uh, being a part of my patients, so I saw them when they were very, very young, I certainly recommend beginning to address potential root causes of, at the first sign of any type of allergic response, which usually occurs around 6 to 12 months of age. I address symptoms immediately, and I do this because I want to identify and reduce the risk of an escalating response occurring year after year. Whether your pet is young or an adult, I hope that this video has given you some potentially helpful recommendations as you look for ways to relieve the suffering of your allergic dog or cat. Well, thank you, Zoya. That was super helpful. Allergy-free goats. <laughs> <laughs> I think half of, half of that stuff could be applied to humans as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. to the low. Well, thank you all for listening, and thank you, Lynn, for calling in and to all of our chatters. And be sure to tune in to Sunday's show, Behind the Headlines, 
And we hope you have a wonderful Friday the 13th. Ooh. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Take good care.